Hey everyone, this is our 2023 year in review preview of the episode that you can get by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any money for doing this show, and we really appreciate it when you support us because, I mean, again, we put a lot of work into this show, and, you know, it's the only way that we get funding for this. Otherwise, here is a kind of longer preview than usual, and uh, hope you enjoy it. Solidarity and Happy New Year. Well, moving to an industry where uh, uh, removing the profit motive maybe shouldn't be a long-term goal. Maybe should be a little <laughs> bit more yeah. near-term. Let's talk mm-hmm. about healthcare a little bit because 2023 was also a very big year for healthcare workers fighting for better conditions for themselves and their patients. Carrying over from the previous year of 2022, a nine-day strike that ended on January 2nd of 2023 kicked off the year of struggle. Nurses across 12 privately run Sutter Health and Alba Bates hospitals in California participated. They had been without a contract since June of 2021, and they finally ratified a contract in March, which secured the longtime union members 23, rather, 21 to 32% wage increases over the life of the contract and 25 to 55% increases for the newly joined Alba Bates nurses. But wages were not the only thing on the agenda for healthcare workers, as we so often see. On the other side of the country in New York, nurses at Mount Sinai and Montefiore Hospital highlighted some of the issues they face on a daily basis. Betty Matthew, an RN at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, explained, quote, In the emergency department, I sometimes care for 20 patients at a time instead of a safe standard of three to six patients. This is not safe or fair for nurses or patients. It leads to worse patient outcomes, and it increases the risk of patient death, end quote. And this is just one of dozens of quotes that we read over the course of the year, where you can quite clearly see these healthcare workers instinctively, immediately, unconditionally putting the outcomes of their patients first and expressing Mm -hmm. that that's a big part of the reason why they're engaged in this struggle in the first place. Something that no matter how many times you try to drive it home uh, is constantly missed by the corporate press when they report on these things. And they're extremely clear about like what the problem is, where it's coming from and what the solution is. And uh, also just to, to throw this out there for patrons, uh, Look forward to some more and uh, some background history about the Montefiore Hospital and how it was originally organized uh, in an upcoming series in a couple of months. <laughs> Ooh, a little Montefiore deep lore. Welcome to the Montefiore <laughs> Hospital iceberg YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, so uh, in this struggle, we saw for the first time the win of safe staffing levels where the hospitals were forced to hire hundreds of new nurses and faced strict financial penalties for failing to do so. One of the major parts of this struggle that is worth highlighting is that members of New York City chapters of PSL, DSA, and other organizations showed up to support and picket the hospitals along with the workers, which surely contributed to the historic win. The demand for safe staffing levels became a rallying call for nearly all, if not all, of the nurses' strikes this year after that. From the Oregon Nurses Association strike of 1,800 workers to the strike of 1,300 UFCW Local 3000 nurses at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Washington, there were at least 28 major work stoppages, said the name of the show, by nurses across (laughs) the country this year. And we can't forget to mention the largest one. 
On October 4th, we saw the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history with 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers hitting the picket lines. Highlighting the dire situation that many workers face, Rocio Chacon, a member of the bargaining committee, told CNN, quote, As we speak, there are nurses that are sleeping in their cars because of two reasons. One, they can't afford cost of living here, so they have to move two, three hours away. And then because of short staff, they're working 14, 16 hours, so they're tired. So their best choice is to be Monday through Friday in their cars, end quote. And it... You know, with the medical workers, it's always medical workers and teachers are the two where it always shocks me. Like uh-huh. that, like everyone relies on these people, everybody directly or indirectly. Your life depends on these people. And we let them yep. sleep in their fucking cars five nights a week. What well, this shit? is like, like, like I'm appalled at hearing that about any worker, mm-hmm. but these are the ones that our society at least part of the time pretends to care about now in teachers for a lot of people, that's less so unfortunately. Um, but, uh, I mean for nurses, so many people all the time, you like, cause you know, they, a lot of times healthcare workers are lumped are kind of lumped in as like first responders. Mm-hmm. And so they get some of that like aura from the, the sun that is the police for the United States. And, and yet our nurses are treated like this. Mm-hmm. Right. So finally on October 13th, a deal was reached. And while they didn't get as strong of language as the Mount Sinai and Montefiore workers on safe staffing, they did get a major increase in funding for union led training of nurses and a wage increase that was meant to attract more nurses to the profession. So still pretty big wins. Uh, In every struggle, the companies attempted to undercut the strikes with retaliation and by hiring scab nurses, and in every case, we saw that this only made the conditions in the healthcare facilities more dangerous when the companies Mm -hmm. could have just given the workers what they needed in the first place to do their jobs. Uh, When it comes to retaliation, in another strike in Oregon at Peace Health... These fucking healthcare names. The names at, are so ridiculous. It really <laughs> wounds me to say some of them out loud. Uh, it's also peace health, one word. I'm going to dig Edward Bernays <laughs> up, beat him up, kill him again, and put him back in the ground. Uh, at Peace Health, the company chose illegal retaliation and paying 150 nurses at $8,000 a week to replace 1,300 workers on a five-day ULP strike. Ugh. Yeah, 150 to replace 1300 and each one of those nurses got $8,000 a week. Uh, yeah, there yeah, are no words that's... for how stupid that is, just as a management decision, like even taking <laughs> politics out of it. But you can't possibly take politics out of it. Anyway, uh, Jonathan Baker, a lab professional and president of the OFNHP, terrible acronym, guys, I'm sorry, told reporters from <laughs> KGWA, quote, Instead of trying to resolve these pro- rather instead of trying to solve these problems, they broke the law again by canceling our bargaining sessions in retaliation for exercising our legal rights and are choosing to terminate the health care insurance that these workers depend on. This is a cruel form of collective punishment directed at a group of healthcare workers they previously called heroes when they were saving lives during the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. And this is also one of those things that's particularly pernicious about Healthcare workers is it's like when you take away their healthcare, man, are you just trying to be like a 19th century <laughs> German, yeah. like tragic drama villain? Like, what are you trying to do here? 
Yeah, and I mean, like, also, I just think that 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 really highlights so much of what happened at so many different strikes with Mm -hmm. just not only the the hiring of nurses, but the, you know, just retaliation for the idea that the work that these nurses or any of the healthcare staff would try to get better conditions for not only themselves, but the patients that they care for. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, every time we see these strikes, uh, really, or even labor activity in any form on this front, it's always to benefit the patients. And we see that in stark contrast to the companies who themselves only want more profit. So, I mean, it's our duty to stand with these workers to dismantle this system of extractive abandonment and demand a single-payer nationalized healthcare system, like I alluded to at the top of the bit. Because it's just like, <laughs> of, of all the industries, man, that, that you're like, let's run it like a business. The one where you give out the life-saving medicine, I just don't, like... Yeah. It's, well, even, even the other shitty imperialist developed capitalist nations have figured out for the most part that you can't really get away with that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah but you know to round us out summing up the year you know you mentioned nurses and teachers and really you know academic workers broadly have really been kind of the biggest constant i think on our show as a whole (laughs) since we started in 2023 they were just as constant of a presence um you know mostly grad students but also undergrad workers and faculty especially adjunct faculty have been unionizing and taking strike action at an ever-increasing pace over the last few years Uh, The cost of living crisis has hit all workers hard, but combined with the soaring cost of education and the, you know, massive uh, ripple effects from the pandemic, uh, many students have been pushed into poverty. And so uh, I'm going to try and do a compressed uh, summary of uh, really running down just some of the struggles and victories by academic workers this year. And, you know, right out the gate, 2023 started with a huge workers' victory when 3,000 grad students at Northwestern University voted by 93.5% to join the UE after eight years of organizing in the second week of January. Uh, And then just next door at the University of Illinois Chicago, hundreds of faculty went on strike a week later, eventually winning major raises, job protections for adjuncts, and mental health resources for students. And this is, again, one of those things that we see just like with the nurses. With so many of these adjunct faculty strikes, there's, of course, a desperate need for better wages and benefits for so many of these workers who are paid dog shit. But so many times they're fighting for stuff that isn't even for them. It's for their students, like, you know, mental health resources. Mm -hmm. And... So at the end of January, 750 grad student workers at Temple University went on their first strike in their their union's history over their pitiful sub-poverty wages of less than $20,000 a year, their total lack of parental leave, and real lack of of protections for international students. And that last one's another one that we saw is very common uh, for grad student unions to have as a big, big priority um, because of so many bullshit ways our immigration system can just decide, oh, no, we're especially racist today. You're being deported for no reason. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, I mean, that, 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 and that's incredibly important, but I, that $20,000 a year also mm-hmm. just an absolute insult. Yeah. Like, uh, I believe when we talked about it at the time, their pay was less than the average rent in the area, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
yeah, it's it, ridiculous. And so, uh, t- but in response to this strike, Temple mounted one of the most aggressive union busting campaigns that we've ever seen at an academic institution on our show. They cut the grad students' pay, which, I mean, that's kind of expected in a strike, but they also cut their health care. They also got rid of their tuition exemption and started billing them for tuition. They started threatening international students with deportation, basically, by being like, hey, you know, you're here to learn and you're on strike against learning, so that could affect your visa, which is a really scumbaggy move. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, And then... <laughs> The school also attempted to turn undergrads against their grad student teachers, telling them to report to classes that were struck and then report their cla- their their professors for being absent. <laughs> Which was just such a petty way to go after them. I deputize you all to be shitty little narcs, please. Yeah. Would you please do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, unsurprisingly, that tactic in particular did not have a ton of success. The striking grad student workers received support from a overwhelming majority of undergrads from the local community and from Temple faculty who voted no confidence in the administration because of their attacks on the grad students. They also received supports from other unions like the Teamsters who stood in solidarity as well, refusing to cross their picket lines, eventually forcing the administration to give in to the workers' demands. Uh, we did have a, a really fun interview with uh, some folks from uh, TUGSA, which is the uh, the acronym for the uh, grad student union there, uh, earlier this year. Um, and then later in April, one of the biggest academic strikes of the year happened with 9,000 faculty, postdocs, and grad student workers organized with the AFT at Rutgers, all going on strike at the same time. And which was actually the first faculty strike in the school's 257-year history. And the strike was launched just before finals. Uh, And the massive pressure and the leverage that was uh, generated by choosing that time to strike, that immediately succeeded. It forced the administration to agree to a new contract in just a week's time. The strike won massive raises of 48% for adjunct faculty, 33% for TAs and grad assistants, and 28% for postdoctoral fellows, centering the needs of the lowest paid workers at the top. Um, Really just showing more how 2023 was a historic year for, you mm -hmm. know, academic organizing. Yeah, I mean, well, the Biden administration didn't do a goddamn thing to help any of us with inflation, and so the only real way out of that was for workers to come together and win it themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in June, with just one week of strike action, uh, postdocs and researchers at the University of Washington secured a 33% increase in minimum pay uh, and a 28% raise for postdocs, improved health care with 100% dental coverage, paid by the university, increased subsidies for child care, new pathways for promotion, just cause protections, and a grievance procedure with a worker-led anti-harassment program. So, like like you were saying, Lena, this kind of underlines this, like, workers weren't just, like, uh, organizing and winning and being militant. Like, they were, like, winning <laughs> big, important gains to make up for, you know, the bullshit of the last 15 or so years. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> especially well, the last three. And, I mean, talking about bullshit, with the next 
bit bit of this is definitely a, a big part of that. Well, right, because uh, yeah, with more militancy also came more backlash and more aggressive repression. Like we talked about how Temple went after their grad workers, but joining them was the University of California being just absolutely ludicrous by charging three students with felonies for writing in chalk on the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, thankfully the charges were dropped a few months later, but that ridiculous intimidation tactic shows, I think, I think it's very, it's, it's evidence that administrators are really shook mm-hmm. by the organizing and the militancy of the student workers and really don't know how to deal with it. And so they're just lashing, trying to just use raw repression and intimidation in some cases like at the university of california yeah i remember the first time i heard about the chalk thing i had to ruminate on it for a couple of days i mean i slept on this for a whole weekend and i googled a bunch of different things it turns out you can remove chalk with water (laughs) oh is it also where they said they had to spend like twenty thousand dollars to remove it yeah yeah like what ten thousand dollar bucket of water I, no. did you buy a gold-plated hose like <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh well we had we use this as an excuse to buy 10 pressure washers mm-hmm. like but you know again it they're lashing out because they don't know what to do um and one of the other cool things though this year with academic workers was students making gains in other forms of solidarity as well because protests by students at Cornell University forced the school to cancel its contract with Starbucks after the corporation chose to close all its standalone stores in Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is based, in retaliation for unionizing. Uh, and in addition to that, we also saw a strike by RAs at Tufts to win a new contract by striking on move-in day, arguably like the biggest pressure day for their job of the year. And well, that strike paid off because their new contract included a 46% increase in compensation. Yeah. uh, Big numbers being posted by academic organized labor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one story that, that we just saw was the record for the longest adjunct strike in U S history being broken once again, I believe second time in a, in a year, uh, this time by adjunct faculty at Columbia college in Chicago, Uh, following last year's record-breaking strike at the new school. This strike lasted 49 days. It was unfortunately marred by some scabbing from some full-time faculty, which sucks and kind of made the strike longer than it probably had to be. Mm -hmm. But eventually, the solidarity of the adjuncts uh, emerged and and those faculty who didn't scab emerged victorious, winning critical job security provisions and rolling back the harshest of the school's proposed course cuts. And then... Just, I'm just going to blow through these real fast to try and summarize these, but I, I think it's important to underline just how many of these victories there were this year. So other schools with major organizing wins included, and these are pretty much all, I think, uh, union victories. So Johns Hopkins grad student workers voted 97% in favor of joining the UE. 3,000 grad students at USC, the University of Southern California, voted 93% in favor of joining the UAW in February. University of Chicago, yes, that University of Chicago, <laughs> uh, grad student workers, the, the, the house that hates unions more than anywhere else, <laughs> uh, even there, grad student workers finally won a union after 20 years of organizing on campus, voting 92% in favor of joining the UE in March. Uh, 1,100 grad student workers at Syracuse joined the SEIU by 95% in April. Also, there was a lot in April. Also in April, 800 grad student workers at Dartmouth voted 89% in favor of joining the UE as well. And more in April wins included the 2,500 grad student workers of the University of Minnesota voting 97% in favor of joining the UE 
and the workers at UMass Dartmouth voting 98% in favor of joining the AFT. And that's the first half of the year. <laughs> In June, 1,100 TAs, tutors, and research assistants at Western Washington University voted 98% in favor of joining the UAW. About 2,000 grad student workers at Stanford voted by 94% to join the UE, also in June. And grad students at the University of Maine, shout out to my alma mater, overwhelmingly won their card check election to join the UAW as well. Uh, Northeastern grad student workers overwhelmingly won their election to join the UAW after eight years of organizing work. In October, 400 undergrad student workers at Harvard voted almost unanimously to join the UAW. 4,000 undergraduate student workers formed a wall-to-wall -wall union covering RAs to research assistants to food service workers, uh, RAs being like uh, resident assistants, not research assistants, uh, the University of Oregon student workers, the UOSW, in a 97% vote in late October. And in early November, 3,000 Cornell grad student workers coming off that victory of organizing by the undergrads to kick Starbucks off campus well, then the grad students also unionized by 96%, also joining the UE. Huge year for the UE. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said at the top, 14,000 new members. Really awesome um, for one of our favorite unions. Absolutely. And just to close us out, you know, critically, workers also moved from winning union representation to winning first contracts as well. In September, the MIT Grad Student Union, the largest single bargaining unit win of 2022, ratified their first contract by 96%, winning an arbitration process, an agency shop, and better pay and benefits. And Yale grad student workers also secured their first contract after joining Unite here in January, making them the highest paid grad student workers in the Ivy League, which is, I suppose, fitting for Yale. <laughs> um, and look, look, I'm glad they, sh they um, I support their union. I'm glad they're organizing, but I'm going to throw in digs at Yale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, as, as you should. But, and you know, of course, student workers continue to pour into unions by the thousands and are showing no signs of slowing down. In just the few stories we mentioned here, over 25,000 student workers joined new unions this year. And of course, we expect 2024 to be another banner year for academic worker organizing with more strikes by adjunct faculty as the cost of living crisis continues. More first contracts from the newly unionized students and tons more new union locals of the UE, UAW, and others. Hell yeah. And now we get to go to your favorite segment at the end of every episode, the meme. Oh, wait, this just <laughs> says predictions. <laughs> the future review. That's right. I love to review the future. <laughs> we're gonna invent yeah it but here. you know we figured you know we just we, we just ran down the whole year and we're starting out 2024 like we've done in our last couple of days uh we gotta throw out some predictions so we can see how right or wrong we are in the next year 